My grandmother always said that it is uh, definitely possible not to pray enough, but totally impossible to pray too much. We're going to pray a little bit more. Dear God, use me this morning as an instrument of thy will. Speak through me so whatever results that you desire here today will be accomplished in all things. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. What I love most about AA is the simplicity of it. I'm a real simple guy. There's a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not a page quoter. I ain't a chapter quoter. This is a design for living, not an exercise in memorization. But there's a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that bottom lines the simplicity of what this is for me. And what it says is simply this. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. The single most important fact in my life as I stand here tonight and the only reason that I'm standing here tonight is that I got a power in my life that I choose to call God who does for me one day at a time what I could never do for myself. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd have never come to AA. Why should I? I didn't come here because I was bored. I didn't come here because I was lonely. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd have never come to AA. Why should I? And I want to acknowledge the source of my help. I want to acknowledge the source of my help. That prayer reminds me of two things that I believe are vital and crucial to me staying here. First and foremost, the reason I'm in Indiana today is to do God's will, not mine. And it also serves to remind me that he is in charge here this morning. And as always, thank God, I am not. Good morning. My name is Kent Cohen. I'm an alcoholic. I was raised right. If my mother was here, she will say, you didn't turn out right. But anyway, um, I wanted... Um, I, I, I want to demonstrate that. I want to thank the committee. I want to thank Jay um, for calling me twice a week um, prior to this. He has to our sponsor. Uh, so, so it was real easy for me, right, to, to get information on the conference. Um, I want to thank the committee. What a wonderful convention this has been. Up to now, you have had tremendous speakers at this conference, right? Um, I've enjoyed them. They're all people that I know. Um, and uh, it's just the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is attractive, isn't it? It is attractive. And I was saying to somebody this morning, right, you don't have to argue and debate with people in here. Carry this message. This message is attractive, and it will attract those who seek it. And, um, and, and that's what we've had here this weekend. Um, I want to talk to our new friends here this morning. Because I remember what it was like to be new. You know, I was like, I, I did a workshop yesterday on the group in a, in a meeting, right? And, and, and sometimes, a lot of my friends have, are old now. It's funny what happens in here, isn't it? Right? One of the things about staying sober a long time is every year you stay sober, you get another year older, right? So, so a lot of my friends now are sober 25, 30, 35, 40 years, right? And every now and then somebody say, yeah, it's been a while. I don't really remember what it was like. If, you, if you're here today and you don't remember what it was like to be new, I have a suggestion for you. Sponsor somebody. Sponsor somebody. That's, that's what keeps it fresh for me. And I remember what it was like to be new. I remember what it was like to walk into Alcoholics Anonymous, having never been here before, knowing nothing about it. I'm not a guy that had been here before, who had been talked to, who had been sent to treatment, who had been. I, nobody gave me a meeting slip. They sent me to jail. Nobody told me, we think you have a problem with alcohol. I always, you know, every time the judge went like this, I went someplace. And it was not an AA meeting, right? 
That's why I remember what it was like to come in here, to come to Alcoholics Anonymous with no AA etiquette at all. I don't know what an open meeting was. I don't know what a closed meeting is. I don't know what a sponsor is. I don't know a big book from a Rand McNally Atlas when I came up in here, right? And, and so I remember what it was like to be new. And if you're new here this morning, welcome home. My friend Ralph says, this is the biggest step you're going to try to take from the cradle to the grave. And I believe that with all my heart. You know, so when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm a street guy. And you stay alive in the street by doing two things. That is watching and listening, right? So that's what I bring in here because that's all I got. And I start watching and I start listening. And two things to was. Some became very apparent to me in here that there were two groups of people. I was going to the Erie Easy Dozen Club in Sandusky, Ohio. We had a morning meeting seven days a week. It was an old bar. You know how them clubs are, right? They turned the bar into a coffee bar, right? Everybody down there was crazy, and I was really, really comfortable there, right? And I wasn't nobody talking a whole lot about no book and no stuff, but it was, you know, that's where I started, right? But there were some good people down there. There most certainly were. And, uh, and I came down there, and I started watching, I started listening. I saw two groups of people, people who are staying sober continuously and people who are not. I'm not here to knock that. I'm not here to shoot our wounded. I'm telling you my experience. This is what I saw, right? The people who were not staying sober, they was in and out, in and out. What I noticed about them was every time they came back from being out again, they looked worse than the last time they came back, from, right? And, and they none of them was passing out $50 bills and driving a new BMW and talking about how good it was out there. They were restless, irritable, and discontented. They talked of terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. That's the first group of people I saw. Then there's another group of people I saw. And if you've been at this convention any amount of time this weekend, you've seen them in action, registration, hospitality. You see them at every AE meeting you go to. They're setting up chairs. They're making coffee. They're putting out the literature. They're greeting at the door. They're cheering meetings. They talk about God, big book, steps, spirituality, enjoying life sober. That was the second group of people I saw. Now, I told you, I am a simple guy, right? So I took a look at this, and I came to this conclusion. The people in group two got a better deal than the people in group one. That is obvious to me, all right? So the next question is, all right, then what is it that the people in group two do that the people in group one don't? What's the difference, right? Well, the people in group two had some things in common. They all talked about the same things. They had something called a sponsor. Now, I didn't know what a sponsor was. I used to play softball for Cronin's Tavern. They was our sponsor. That's all I know about sponsorship. I got free clothes and beer out of that deal. I thought, well, maybe this thing ain't so bad. So I started looking for a sponsor that's got some money, right? And that what you do, I think you do, right? Because I didn't have enough, right? And, um, and, and thank God. I want to say something about it. The early members of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the old-timers where I grew up, they never made me feel less than because I didn't know. They sat us down and they shared these things. They didn't expect us to know. I came in here. I had the word mother wrapped around every other word I said. I didn't come here from Sunday school, right? And they sat me down and they talked to me. They never made me feel less than. They never made me feel like I didn't belong here. They, they treated us with patience, tolerance, understanding, and love. And I said this yesterday. Now, when we got out of line, they corrected us. They did not allow us to hijack AA meetings where I live at. They did not. They told me there's a big difference between carrying the message and spreading the disease, and we ain't doing that in here. Okay? They told us, get your coffee, get your donut, 
Go to the bathroom. You're a grown man. Get in your seat, and when the meeting starts, you should hear a cotton ball hit the floor. That's the way I was brought into Alcoholics Anonymous. We weren't walking around during the speaker. We weren't playing on our telephone. But we didn't. Cell phones hadn't been invented when I got sober, but you know what I mean, right? Nobody was looking at their pager. Let's put it that way, right? None of that was going on at that time, right? Right? They told us, get in here. And they, they told me, they said, we don't care if you want to be here or not. But we're going to tell you something, buddy. You're not going to disrupt those who do want to be here and who do want to hear this message. You're not going to be allowed to do that. Right? My damn is, am I doing that at my own group today? Am I doing that at my home group today? Or am I just sitting back passively and then going out and complaining about the new people who come to these meetings? What am I doing? That was the tone and tenor of the workshop I did in here yesterday. As a group, what are we doing? Are we taking responsibility for our own meeting, or are we turning it over to the people who are walking in the door? Because I don't think we're doing them any kind of service if that's what we're doing. So these people, had, they had something called a sponsor. And uh, they told me that the sponsor is somebody who has working knowledge and experience with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's outlined by the founders in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, who is willing to walk you through that book and share that process with you and their experience with it. They are a living demonstration of those principles in their life who can show you what your life can be like if you do what they do. Notice I said working knowledge and experience, not book knowledge and experience. I have a college education. I know how to read. What I don't know how to do is live sober. I have sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous today. Uh, my sponsor spoke here Friday night. He's sitting over there, Bob, from Las Vegas. And, and what I will say, and I've been blessed with great sponsorship since I've been here. Um, my first sponsor, um, I was raised in AA by um, the late Bill Finley and Lorraine, who used to come to Indiana all the time. And uh, Ken B. in uh, Parma, um, Bill got sober, and uh, well, he died over 50 years sober. Um, Kenny got sober in 1972. Bob got sober in 1978. And, and, and the beautiful thing about the sponsorship I've been blessed with, um, when I talked to Bob, and it was the same with Bill and Kenny, they didn't ask me where I'm going and what I'm doing. They told me where they was going and what they was doing. Um, Three men that God placed in my life who have given themselves to this simple program. And, um, and the power of example is, 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 um, is unquantifiable in here, right? And so I have sponsorship in my life. If you're new here today, I want to share something with you. Having a sponsor is a great thing. Being sponsorable is a whole lot better, all right? Guy asked me the other day, I work with a lot of alcoholics, right? Guy asked me the other day, Ken, how many people do you sponsor? I said, oh, about half of them. <laughs> is that not the truth, right? Sponsorship is like everything else in here, right? You will get out of it what you put into it. That is the, the tone and tenor of everything that we have here. I like to do this sometime. I think I'll do it this morning. Would everybody in here this morning who would be willing to sponsor a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous, please raise your hand. Thank you. If you knew and you ain't got a sponsor, I just hooked you up. Right? No one ever need leave an AA meeting without the benefit of sponsorship. That is something that we really emphasize at my home group. I was, uh, everybody always laughs when I do that, but I, th th there's something serious behind that. When I was new, because I remember what it was like to be new, I don't know if you got 10 years or 10 minutes, nor do I know 
whether or not you're willing to help a guy like me who doesn't even feel he deserves any help. So if you're new in here and you ain't got a sponsor, like I said, I just hooked you up, right? What you do with that information, because the help you need just identified itself, what you do with that information is up to you. It is up to you. Now, I, I, was, um, I, I spoke at a convention down in um, Mexico a couple months ago, and um, afterward in the thank you line, um, a young lady came up to me, and she was speaking in Spanish, and she was talking very fast, and I don't speak Spanish, so I couldn't understand her, and she was pointing at this older lady, and a guy standing behind, and I was like, honey, I don't understand what she's saying, and the guy standing behind her said, Kent, she's telling you she just got a sponsor. See, because that's what happens in here. See, and because I, I don't know. I, I remember what it was like to be new. Another thing that those people had in common in their second group was they had something called a home group. Now, I didn't know what a home group was. When I was new, I went to tons of meetings, right? I always enjoyed AA meetings. And um, so I go to all these meetings, and people would ask me, what's your home group? And this is what I used to say. You ever hear this one? All the groups are my home group. You hear that one? Right. Because <laughs> I want no responsibility. I heard a guy say one time, if you got a home group and you don't show up, they'll call you to see where you're at. Oh, no, we ain't having that, right? Because I'm, I'm keeping you at arm's length when I come here, right? <coughs> Excuse me. So once I got the sponsor, he told me how to get a home group. And, uh, and I have a home group today. It's the Venice Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Sandusky, Ohio. It's an old group. We started as an Oxford group meeting in 1938. Our first member came out of the hospital in Akron um, under the tutelage of Dr. Bob in 1938. Um, we became an AA meeting, I believe, in 1941. Um, so we've been around for a while. Our primary purpose is to get – and let me say something to you about my home group. My home group ain't the best group in the world. It ain't the worst group in the world. It's an AA group. One of the things my first sponsor taught me was when I came here, he said, it's okay to stop competing now. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a competition. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. Anytime I get into competition, see, prior to Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know about nobody in here, my entire life was lived on a better than or less than basis. And here's what happened when I'm better than or less than. I ain't never a part of um, Bob talked about it Friday night, separation, separation, right? Tradition one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. So I don't belong to the best group in the world. I put it to you like this, this is the best group in the world for me, right? And I hope you feel that way about your home group. That don't make my group better than yours, don't make yours better than mine, don't mean God loves me more than he loves you, don't mean he loves you more than he loves me. Am, am I making any sense this morning? Right? That's not what this is. This is about unity. It is about unity. Our primary purpose is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. I think we do a pretty good job of that, and we have a lot of fun in the process. And that's what I like to call the total package in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sponsorship. Big Book and Steps, Home Group, and a Service Commitment, the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous. In my experience, I have yet to see an alcoholic of our type. And if you don't know what an alcoholic of our type is, read the book. I have yet to meet an alcoholic of our type who has taken those things, applied it to their life, one day at a time to the best of their ability, which is all that's required. If you're new here and you're anything like me and you think you got to do everything perfect, I got news for you. God only requires of me today that I do the best that I can with what I have. I've yet to see an alcoholic of our type do that, go back out here and take a drink. I ain't seen it happen one single time. 
and I've been here for a while. If you're new here, I got a message for you. The program of recovery is designed for success, not for failure. I got 36 spiritual principles that I can apply to my life a day at a time. 12 steps, 12 traditions, and 12 concepts. And that is the way that I sponsor. I take a man through the book. We go through the steps. After we go through the steps, we go through the 12 traditions. After the 12 traditions, the 12 concepts. I do not send my sponsees out into the world of Alcoholics Anonymous with an empty gun. I do not expect them to be contributing members to the fellowship and the service structure of Alcoholics Anonymous and not know what it is. And as a sponsor, I am responsible for that. I am responsible for that. Thank God I got these 36 spiritual principles at my disposal because I don't know which one I'm going to need today. Perhaps the the right of of participation is going to have to be practiced in my life today. I, I I don't know. I don't know. But thank God for good sponsorship. And so that's what I like to call the total package. My message to you, if you're new here today, the program of recovery was designed for success, not for failure. They call Bill Wilson the greatest social architect of the 20th century. You could take those 36 principles to the United Nations, and the, the, the guy that was the head of the United Nations years ago said if we applied those things here, the result would be world peace. It's a remarkable structure that we have at our disposal today. And um, if you knew it here today, jump in head first, because there's a life that's, that's ahead of you that is beyond your ability to comprehend. That is my, the message that I carry to you this morning. I, uh, I identified myself as an alcoholic when I came up here. I didn't know what that was when I came here either. I always had a definition for alcoholic prior to AA, because I'm a guy that thinks he knows everything. So if you'd ask me, when I, I like to say my definition of an alcoholic was a sliding definition because as my alcoholism progressed, I kept fitting my definition. So every time I fit it, I'd have to lower the bar a little bit. If you asked me when I was a teenager what an alcoholic is, I would have told you somebody that's drunk every day. I have no idea where I got that from, but that's what I would have told you. As a teenager, I became a daily drinker. Uh, that ain't it. I thought about it, I said an alcoholic is somebody who misses work, school, ball, practice, important things in life because of drinking. It interferes with your priorities in life. Yes, that must be an alcoholic. As a teenager, I began to miss work, school, ball, practice, important things in life because of drinking. That ain't it. (laughs) Thought about it a little more. I finally figured out an alcoholic is somebody who goes to jail because of drinking. I don't have any idea where I got that from, and I really had to change that one quick, as you'll hear in a little while. By the time I got here, y'all remember old Otis on the Andy Griffith show? Remember Otis? Clothes all the way wrinkled. He always had a pint of cheap wine on him. He's in and out of jail. I watched every episode of the Andy Griffith show, black and white and in color. I don't remember Otis working no place, right? This, this, that certainly must be an alcoholic. I always tell us this true story. I was speaking at a convention over in England, and I asked them that question. I said, y'all remember Otis on the Andy Griffith show? 2,000 people went, No. Messed me up. I thought they had cable over there. <laughs> Y'all know you see him, long trench coat, stocking cap on, drinking wild Irish rose, mad dog, thunderbird out of brown paper sack, sleeping under a cardboard box. Yes, that certainly must be an alcoholic, right? That's my deal. Why is that my definition when I come to you? Because that's the only thing that had not yet happened to me. And if I didn't have a family that I had, that's exactly where I would have been. That is exactly what I, I can stand here today in all honesty and tell you I drink in Wino's Alley in Sandusky, Ohio with them old men. I put 50 cents on the wine. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
50 cent on the wine. I drank in that alley. Only difference between me and them old men when it got dark, there was somebody opened the door for me and there was nobody left to do it for them. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. My alcoholism does not like you. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you knew, I want you to roll with me for a minute. When I came in here as a newcomer, my disease was threatened by this. It don't like this. And it doesn't look to identify. It looks to compare. And so I start looking for differences. And I heard a lot of people in here talk about stories of homelessness. Right? So I went to an AA meeting, and I poked my chest out, and I said, you know what? I ain't never been homeless. And thank God for the longtime members of Alcoholics Anonymous who recognize untreated alcoholism in the meeting. Because there was a man, his name, God rest his soul, was Jim Redmond. He died. He was 53 years sober when he died. He was no Cleveland guy that moved out by me when he retired. And he was sitting in the back of the room. And this is the thing that upset me more than anything else. It was not his turn to share. <laughs> Jim Redmond goes, Really? Really? He said, son, I got some bad news for you. He said, if you grown and you living in your mom and daddy's house and you ain't paying no rent, you're homeless. <laughs> and I wanted to hit him after the meeting. He hurt my feelings. I hope I didn't step on no poles in here this morning, but, you know, the truth will set you free, right? What is this thing called alcoholism, right? First thing in the book, doctor's opinion. Right? If I want to know how to work with a new person, and I, uh, people ask me all the time, how do I work with a new guy? What do I do? Right? The book is the original sponsor. The fellowship grew out the book. The book didn't grow out. The fellowship, there's less than 40 people in Alcoholics Anonymous when they started messing with this book. They stuck this thing in the mail. That's why you got Alcoholics Anonymous in Indianapolis, in French Lake, in Las Vegas in Los Angeles, in Orlando, in Dallas, in Denver, right? The book is the original spot. I want to know how to work. What's the first thing in the book? What is the problem, right? It's called alcoholism, right? Silkworth said, no, there's a mental obsession, and I got this physical allergy. He called it the phenomenon of craving, right? Now, this, this mental obsession to drink, what is an obsession? I'm a simple guy. Thought so strong it will override or overcome any thinking that I can raise as a defense against it. In my drinking days, what are some of the mental defenses I tried to raise against taking the first drink? Well, I tried common sense. My grandmother told me after I got sober, why that didn't work. She said, boy, you weren't run, born with none of that. Right? I did this last week. That didn't work right. I shouldn't do it no more. Right? I did it anyway. Right? I tried self-knowledge. Right? I shouldn't drive down Perkins Avenue drunk anymore. Right? That didn't work. I tried willpower. Have you ever tried that one? It was Betty Ford and Nancy Reagan and one of them. I don't remember which one. I've drunk through all them years. I don't remember, you know. But what somebody said, just say no. And doggone it, I just kept saying, give me another one. That didn't work. I tried fear. Anybody ever tried this? Fear of consequences I was facing if I drank. I'm in my late teens. I'm not in my 30s or 40s. I'm in my late teens. I'm waking up, laying in the bed, and still in the bed mentally making a list of all the reasons why I ain't drinking today. If you knew here and you do that, I have a message for you. That is an indicator of a problem. People who don't have a problem don't do that, Right? If I drink today, I'm going to get kicked out of school, get kicked off the team, lose my job, girlfriend going to leave me, flunk out of school, dirty urine, I'm going to prison. All them things true in my life at one time or another. And if you drink like I drink, usually three or four, I'm going on simultaneously. 
right? So I would lay in the bed, take a look at the truth, and they were all true. And I make the easiest kind of decision there is to make, a decision based on truth. I ain't drinking. And I meant it as much as I mean it today. I didn't want to get kicked off the team. I didn't want to lose my girlfriend. I didn't want to have to live in the street. I didn't want to go to prison any more than I do today. I meant it from the bottom of my heart. Our book refers to that as sound reasoning. And it is, isn't it? It is sound reasoning. It's based on truth. And then I get out of the bed. And usually about five seconds later, because the book says parallel to this sound reasoning, Ransom insanely circled the word insanely trivial excuse to take a drink. I get out of the bed, and here's the thought that comes to me. It's Friday. <laughs> it's Friday, and you know I have work all week, which for me is three days. You know, if you really stop and think about it, none of this is really my fault. I am a victim here, right? This is the United States of America. I am grown, and by God, I deserve a Is anybody following this? Here's the thing. This is the power of obsession. That those thoughts, that sound reasoning, that truth that I had five minutes before, never come back. There, it, there, the book said there's no fight. Right? Such is the power of obsession. And our book goes on to say, Silkworth says, something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change to stop that. Something more than human power. My drinking history is littered with hundreds of stories of my attempts to think my way sober. Is anybody following me? But I always drink again. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd have never come here. Why should I? So now that I'm only going to have this one, I pick up the drink and I drink it. And the second part of the disease, Silkworth talks about the phenomenon of craving. And this is the first time that this was introduced to the world, this physical allergy, this physical aspect to this disease. And, and there's a little story I like to tell. Some of you have heard me tell it before, but it's a story about it. And it's a true story. I'm out cutting my grass. I'm sober about 10 years maybe. And so is my non-alcoholic next-door neighbor. It's 90 degrees outside. He gets hot and thirsty. I'm watching him. He shuts his lawnmower off. He gets off it. He walks over to his deck. There's a cooler there. It is full of cold beer. He flips it open. He pulls out a cold one. He pops the top on her. He sucks it down. It quenches his thirst. I mean, nobody in here is going to believe it, but I see this with my own two eyes. With that full cooler of beer still sitting there, that man actually got back on his lawnmower and finished cutting his grass. Now, I'm over here 10 years sober going, you <laughs> What's wrong with you, dude? Right? Because that ain't what happens when I drink. Right? When if, if I get off of my lawnmower and I pop the top on a cold one and I suck her down, it does not quench my thirst. If you're new in here, what it does to me and maybe to you is it makes me thirstier. And grass cutting is over at the Coleman House. 
My lawnmower will be sitting in that same spot two weeks from now when I get out the county because that's on our roll, right? The neighbors are looking out. There you go again, right? It was the same thing. The lady lived next door to me. Oh, there, there he goes again, right? Spiritual malady, soul sickness. My disease is rooted in selfishness and self-centeredness. I'm so full of me I can't see you. I'm a guy that at the age of 14 made a conscious decision to call my own shots in life. I was not raised that way. I was taught entirely differently. I'll talk about that in a minute. But at the age of 14, I made a conscious decision that when I'm old enough, and it, it, Dr. Bob said it in his story, I will never again darken the door of the church. I don't need all that. I know y'all need it, but I got a better way. And so I began, I began to be the actor that wants to be the director. Notice I, I didn't say I was a director. I'm an actor that wants to be the director. And I began to try to control and manipulate the people, places, and things around me to satisfy the basic instincts that Bill talks about in the 12 and 12, the need for security, the need for sex, right, the need for money, all of that, right? And, and there's a small problem with, with being general manager of the universe is that the people, places, and things in my life refuse to cooperate. <laughs> and as a result of that, I push harder or I pull harder, whichever it is, and the frustration just continues to mount over and over and over and over, and I become still more restless and irritable and discontented and afraid, and that's what active alcoholism looks like in my life, mentally, physically, and spiritually. Our book goes on to tell us that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Right. So what is it that this process will do for me? It will address the spiritual malady. It's funny how our book continually says everything good in my life will follow my spiritual growth. It will never precede it. Financial, all of that will fight. It will never precede it. I can't put the car in front of the horse. I used to go around and say stuff like this. You ever hear this? When I quit drinking and doing the things I do, I'm going to get with God. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, when I, when I get right, I'm going to go to God, right? Well, if I could get right by myself, I wouldn't need God. I need to get with God so I can get better. Right. This disease of mind, body, and spirit is called alcoholism. And I don't know if you got it, but I definitely got it. And if I don't treat it, death, imprisonment, or commitment are guaranteed me. Guaranteed me. And if you're new here and you don't get that, stick around. And watch what happens to the people who don't. I'm now 56 years old. I was born in the city of Sandusky. I was the second of three boys. I was raised in a Christian home. I was taught the difference between right and wrong before my feet ever hit the front yard. All of the spiritual principles that are espoused in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous were not only taught but demonstrated in the home that I came from. My mother worked for Chrysler Corporation. My father worked for General Motors. I'm retired from Ford. And uh, I say we had a lot of craziness in the house, but we had really nice cars, man. Right? I was the second of three boys. Um, we were spoiled, rotten. Um, my mother and father went to any length um, to give us the things that was denied them when they were young. My mom and dad were the best. I'm the son of Pete and Evelyn Coleman. Um, anything that we wanted within reason, we got. Anything that we wanted that was not within reason, there was another person in our house named our grandmother. 
and the word no was not in her vocabulary. This is the, we went on vacations, we wore $100 tennis shoes in the early 1970s. This is the kind of family that I come from. My father was the commissioner of the Youth Baseball League, the Youth Football League. My mother was the president of Ohio Baptist Women's Convention. A lot of the famous people that you see on TV and politics and religion people have been in my house. That is the atmosphere in which I was raised. I was not sent to church. I was taken to church. All of the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was taught as a child. They told us honesty is the best policy. A real man is always honest with himself and other people. In my house, maybe in yours, we got automatic whoopings when we got caught lying. Did that happen to anybody else's house in here? That's step one. I learned that at the end of the hickory stick. The principle of step one is honesty. I was about seven years old. My mother said to me one day, Kenny, come here. I'm worried about you. She said, contrary to what you seem to believe, the sun don't rise when you wake up and set when you go to bed. She said, look out the window and tell me what you see. I said, sky, grass, cars, dogs, people. She said, you think it just popped up out of nowhere? She said, there's a power that's greater than you that created all this. All you have to do is be willing to believe that step two. In our house, they said, if you will make a decision to put your life in the hands of the power that created all this. Now, in my house, they called that power God. She said, you will always have what you need, no matter what happens outside or around you. They was telling us the answer is inside, not outside, step three. In our house, they told us, anytime you got a problem, no matter how bad you think it is, come talk to us about it. The problem shared is the problem half solved. You're only as sick as your secrets. No man is an island. Anybody ever heard that stuff before? That stuff's four and five. My mother used to say the biggest room in a human being's life is the room for improvement. If you can make C's, you can make B's. If you can make B's, you can make A's. Any area of your life that you want to improve in positively, if you will ask that power to help you, the power will always do so. That's what the power does. The power is good, step six or seven. In our house, they told us anytime you hurt, harm, or wrong, somebody else. Go make right the wrong you've done. You owe money, pay it. You owe an apology, make it. You owe time, give it. Clean up your mess. That's what responsible people do. Anybody ever heard that before? That's steps eight and nine. My mother used to say you can never go forward in this life if you don't know where you are today and what you need to work on to get wherever it is you want to go. You know, I read a book when I was in high school about Socrates, and he said the unexamined life is a waste. Step 10. Our grandmother said the secret to having a good day is very simple. We were little boys. She said when you wake up in the morning, slide out of the bed onto your knees, say one word, please. As you go through the day and you don't know what to do, ask the power to help you. And at night, hit your knees before you get back in the bed, say two words, thank you, conscious contact with God, step 11. And in our house, they told us the greatest thing a human being could do with their lives was not acquire money and material things. It was to be of service to others, and that was demonstrated in our home. Right? Follow the golden rule. Talk to folks the way you want to be talked to. Treat folks the way you want to be treated. Offer to share what you have with others before you have your own. Be of service to your fellow man. That is step 12. When I got on a bus to go to kindergarten, I was already armed with a set of principles, spiritual in nature, that I recognized almost immediately when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous as our 12 step. Anybody else in here taught those things? Mm-hmm. So I know you must be thinking to yourself, well, Ken, if you had all that before you went off to kindergarten, what on earth are you doing leading an AA meeting this morning. I bet you know the answer to that too, don't you? I never did any of it. I talked about it a lot. You ever be down to tavern and there'd be some drunk in there quoting scripture? That was me. I'd be down to Brownlee's Tavern on Friday night. Somebody always had a, a, a breakdown every Friday down to Brownlee's. And it was usually because they was going to jail, losing their job, and getting divorced, because that's what we did down to Brownlee's. Kid would stagger over with a drink in his hand and say something like this. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. I'm giving spiritual guidance down to Brownlee's Tavern. <laughs> and 
But I didn't stop there. I give marital advice down to Brownlees. I had never had a wife, but I didn't see how that made a difference. With my life savings laying on the bars, I was a financial counselor down to Brownlees. My father called me a walking encyclopedia of perfectly useless information. And I understand today why he said that none of it was born of my experience. I am a parrot. I read a lot, I got a good memory, and I talk well. So I was a parrot. And I started doing that in Alcoholics Anonymous, too. Right? Because I was addicted to approval long before I picked up a drink. Right? And I want yours in here. So I would go to a meeting, and if somebody said something that sounded good, I would file that bad boy away. Don't even know what it means. And I'd go to a meeting, and then I would repeat it. Right? Well, I went to a meeting one day and said, meeting makers make it. Man, they almost tore my head off in here. That's it. It, was, it went over good at the club, right? But when there were people with sobriety, they was like, oh, no, 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 son. Right? I'm going to tell you what they told me. They said meetings are important. Literature is important. All these wonderful, this is, I believe, this is the greatest time in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous to be a member of AA. We, we have more workshops, conferences, conventions, more meetings than ever before. The dissemination of information in this program is at its all-time height. But our rate of recovery is not, is it? Right? It's because this is not intellectual. This is spiritual. This is a program of action. This is not about the acquisition of knowledge and intellect. It is about the application of principles. And that's why I can't stay drunk. Because I knew this stuff. And I never did any of it. You know, be careful of what you're repeating here. My, my first sponsor told me something that served me well to this day. He said, if it ain't in here, leave it alone. How simple is that? And I have done that. I told him, man, I heard somebody say at a meeting, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, ooh, 90 days, I'll be good. Right? I said to old John, I said, John, I'm fishing, right? How long do I have to go to these meetings? He looked at me and said, till you decide you want to drink again. I said, how about 90 meetings in 90 days? He said, we don't have quarterly recovery here. <laughs> he said, son, that came out of the treatment centers. That's not Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God for the longtime members of Alcoholics Anonymous who are there. Not knocking, going to meet. Go to meet. But, but you know what they taught me? That all of these things that we have, meetings, literature, you know, workshops, all of them have one purpose, and that is to facilitate the 12-step message and applying that to my life. They're not a substitute for that. And as soon as I understood that, then AA started to make some sense. Started to make some I was able to separate the misinformation from the truth. I was shy, insecure, and afraid as a kid. Um, you've heard it up here all weekend. Never felt um, comfortable in my own skin. Um, I like the term maladjusted to life. I, it just seemed like there's something missing. That's the easiest way I can put it. There's something. Everybody else seems to have something. There's like a chip in my head that is missing. I am uncomfortable. I am restless. I am irritable. I am discontented. I can't give you, if you ask me why, I can't tell you because I got everything that I need. 
I got an older brother. He ain't like that. We was raised the same, had the same stuff. He wasn't like that. Why am I like that? I ain't got the faintest idea. And I'm not up here to analyze it. I'm just here to tell you that is my experience. So I start looking outside of me for something to address this funny feeling that I got on the inside. I read a lot. Um, I could read before I went to school. Um, I daydreamed a lot. I watched a lot of TV. What I'm doing now is I look in retrospect at this thing is I'm seeking different avenues of escape. I'm looking for ease and comfort is what I'm doing. My primary source of ease and comfort as a youngster was my older brother. He was a great athlete in our town. I come from a, a, a place where football is king. Um, I come from a family that plays a lot of football. There's been NFL people in my family. Um, everybody in my family pretty much played major college football, those that were athletic. And, um, and so that's what we were raised to do. And um, my older brother was going to go to Ohio State. And um, in September um, of 1972, he was injured. He was a running back. He was injured in a scrimmage in Maslin, Ohio. We used to scrimmage the Maslin Tigers every year. And Sandusky and Maslin was the two big high school powers in Ohio. And uh, there were no playoffs back then, so we settled the state championship a week before the season even started. We called it Blood Saturday. And he was injured late in the scrimmage. He walked to the sidelines. The guy hit him low. He fell funny. Um, he collapsed, stopped breathing, went into a coma Saturday night, nine hours of brain surgery on Monday. He died Wednesday, September the 5th, 1972. I remember like it was yesterday. My brother took me with him everywhere he went. And that's an uncommon thing because he was four years older than me. He would grab me when he would leave the house and say, come go with me. I look back on that now. I think God knew we wasn't going to have much time. And my brother was my my brother was my hero. He was a lot of people's hero. A lot of NFL guys come from where I live, and he was regarded as probably the best prospect to come out of there in 30 years. And um, did that make me alcoholic? Absolutely not. Um, I'll tell you what it did do to me is it broke my heart and almost killed my mom and dad. And I ain't going to tell you what it did to my grandparents. Um, changed football in our town, changed sports in our town. It was a big thing. And it was 1972. They didn't send counselors to the high school to counsel everybody. Everybody was on their own in them days. And I didn't burden my mother and father because my mother and father had a hard enough time with this as it was. And now I feel what it did to me is it seemed to accentuate the feelings of difference that I already had. I already feel disconnected from everybody. Now there's an elephant in the room. Everywhere I go, that's the guy whose brother died. And nobody knows what to say. And so there's an awkward silence everywhere I go, and I just feel more and more and more isolated. Um, my mom used to talk to me a lot after my brother died, and she used to spend a lot of time with me and tell me, Kenny, God's been good to you. He's given you a lot of gifts. One of these days you're going to help other people. And I used to look at my mother like she had three heads. And I told her, I don't know where you get this stuff at, but I ain't got no desire to be a service to God to you or nobody else. If you want to know what I want out of life, I want to be cool. Right? I want mine. I want to get it my way, right? And I ain't going to do it the way you do it. I need you to leave me alone and let me go. And you know how your mother get that sad look on her face and she shake her head and she say, you know, we didn't raise you that way. You don't get it. And I point my finger. I said, you're the one who don't get it. If you don't think my way is going to work, get out of the way and watch. Right? One of the gifts God did give me is I did well in school. I give God credit for that today. That's a gift. I didn't, I'm a guy that school comes easy for me. I have to study, right, I really spend no time at it. I'm a straight-A student. What that means is I can absorb huge amounts of information in short amounts of time, and I know how to take a test. That does not make you a good student. I found that out when I got to college. But uh, so I'm a straight-A student, and I'm sitting in, in uh, study hall in school one day. My first sponsor said something to me when I was pretty new in AA. One day he looked at me, and he said, son, anytime you're in a room alone, all your enemies are there. And what he was referring to is my thinking. 
And uh, I'm sitting in study hall, and I have a visit from the enemy, my thinking. I'm 14 years old. Here's the thought that come to me. You know, these people in here breaking their neck trying to get B's and C's taking general math and science. I'm in the 10th grade. I'm taking calculus, physics, fourth year, Latin, fourth year, English. I'm sleeping in class and getting straight A's. You know, it just might be entirely possible that I know everything. I had no evidence to support that thought as being true. I accepted that as a fact. I left the room and took action on it. I went home and told that to my mother and father. Because I thought they ought to know. Right? Things around the house are bound to change once this information is made public. What happened at that moment is my father came up the couch. Let me say something about my father. My father was uh my father my father played football before they had face masks. He played at West Virginia State University. My father was a decorated uh, veteran from the Korean conflict. My father was in the woods in Korea. Um my father wasn't a man of a whole lot of words, but he was a man of a whole lot of action. And when he came up off that couch, I decided not to stay and see what he wanted. <laughs> I broke for the screen door. I got out the screen door and closed the screen door, right? And uh, I never asked my father to the day he died what he was going to do to me. And, and he must, I, I can imagine, he must have said, hey, look what we got in the house. I'm going to kill it. Anyway, uh, I got out the screen door. My father looked at me through the screen door and he said, Kenny, so I'm going to tell you something, boy. He said, you have a hard life. He said, because don't nobody know everything. And I stood on that porch, and I looked through the screen door, and I looked my father dead in his eye, and I laughed in his face. That was a significant day in my life, because on that day, I closed the door. Our book says, honesty, open-mindedness, the willingness of the three essentials of recovery, that these are indispensable. That means I cannot learn, I cannot grow, I cannot progress as a human being without those things, and I most certainly cannot stay sober. On that day, I closed the door. Everybody in my life became an idiot. My mother, my father, the preacher, the teacher, later on, the police, the judges, the lawyer, the probation, the PO. You can't tell me, because I already knowing and if I don't know it, it ain't worth knowing became my philosophy of life. I'm selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed, and according to my mother, mean as a rattlesnake. I have yet to take a drink of alcohol. I tell people I was the perfectly killed soil for the disease of alcoholism. All I had to do was water it and see if I had the physical, and one day I did. I got in the car with a guy whose life I lived in my head. His name was Johnny. Johnny was two years older than me. He was a captain of the basketball team at Sandusky High School. Like I say, he's a guy whose life I lived in my head. He had a snazzy car, pocket full of money. He was respected in the streets, and he ran around with the kind of girls I ran away from. He was my best friend's older brother. We got in the car. Johnny looked at me and he said, hey, Coleman, you want to get something to drink? I had been warned about drinking alcohol. Alcoholism does not run in my family. It gallops. And I had been told we do not do alcohol well. Look at your Uncle Ed. Look at Junior. Look at Bobby. All of them died. It's cirrhosis. Both sides. I'm just, it's, my family is rife with this disease. If Johnny had said to me that day, let's go rob the carry out, I absolutely guarantee you I would have done it without batting an eye. That's the link I'm willing to go to to gain your approval. That's the link I'm willing to go to to try to fill this thing in me that I can't describe to you, but I know seems to grow in intensity every day. It's like somebody turning up the current on it, and it's just this this feeling of, of restlessness, this, this something missing. We went through the drive-thru. We bought 10 quarts of Swiss Mall Liquor Bowl. We bought that because it was on sale. More bang for your buck. Uh, dropped the convertible top on that beautiful Pontiac. We rolled through the streets of Sandusky, Ohio, cranked up the Parliament Funkadelic, and we drank that beer. And I'm going to tell you something. I've heard a lot of descriptions on what happens when alcohol meets alcohol. Like a potential alcoholic. Here's what happened. On that day, I started drinking. I started growing. The rest of the world started shrinking. I went from shy, insecure, and afraid to bold, confident, suave, debonair, worldly, and absolutely fearless in about 20 minutes. 
We went behind the Derrick apartments where all the gangsters hung out. I ain't said five words in public in the last three years. Music is blasting. Convertible top is down. People surrounded the car. It was a beautiful day. I looked at Johnny. I said, Johnny, turn that music down because there's a few things I want to tell a few people who are present here this afternoon that I have been wanting to tell them for quite some time. I went around that circle of hoodlums, told each and every one of them not only what I thought of them, but what they needed to do, in my opinion, to improve themselves. The reaction of the guys around the car, guys is leaning in the convertible and hugging me, saying, see, I told you, I told you my boy, all right, Coleman, all right, he's loosening up, he's doing a little drinking, he's one of us. Boom, contact. From separation to contact, boom, just like that. I made a mental note of that. When I drink, I change. And I now have the acceptance of the people whose acceptance I want the most, and that ain't mom and dad. That's them drive-by shooters behind the Derrick apartments. Alcohol equals success, and you better believe I connected the dot. We left from there, went over to the home of some of them girls he run around with, I run away from. Never been over there in my life. I walked into that home like I was paying the mortgage. I sat down at the dining room table, and I made eye contact with a I still say is the finest girl to graduate from Sandusky High School in his 172-year history. I had never even breathed in her direction, much less said hello. And I looked at her, and she looked up at me, and I said, come here. And she got up and started walking toward me. Now, any sane human being at this point would probably think to themselves, gee, kid, if you weren't so shy and scared, look what you could have done by just speaking up. Is that what I thought? Nope. If you knew here, roll with me, because this is what I thought. If you had been drinking before now, look what you could have done. Is anybody getting this? Right? I immediately attributed it to drinking. Alcohol equals success. You better believe I got it. Now, I'll be honest with you today, when she got over there, tell me I didn't have a faintest idea what to do with her. Uh, I don't think that far ahead when I'm drinking. So I did what I see them do on TV. I, I had a lot of time on my hands. I watched a lot of TV. On TV, they go like this, so I did. And she sat down in my lap, and my life changed again. And the upshoot to that whole story is on that day, alcohol did for me what I could not or would not do for myself. For the first time in my life, I felt whole. And that is a very powerful thing. And only God is supposed to be able to do that. What happened the rest of that day? Give you the rest of my drink in history and we can get out of it, drink trouble. A lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't get DUIs and lose jobs. And you don't have to. You can get off the elevator at any floor. The price of admission here is honesty. You can get off the floor and you do not have to lose nothing, right? That ain't my experience. If this was a beer, and I stood here this morning and took a drink, a cop would drop right out of that light and land in the middle of the floor. sink, I looked through bloodshot eyes in the mirror, and this is what I said, man, oh man, I cannot wait to do that again. Grounded for life is what was being discussed in the living room, and how that sentence was going to be carried out. I grounded for life the first time I got drunk. So I had a meeting with myself in the bathroom. I love to have a meeting with myself, private alcoholics anonymous. Uh, if you knew here, I highly suggest you get a sponsor and cut that out. But uh, 
meeting with myself in the bathroom, but here's what I came up with. Okay, kid, here's what happened. You got drunk? Yep. You got sick? Yep. You got grounded for life. All these things are true. Now, the problem, Kent, is not that you got drunk. The problem is that you got sick. So what you got to do is learn how to drink without getting sick. I knew I was in the right place. Absolutely insane. I cannot see the forest for the trees. I'm 14 years old, and I was gone. Alcoholism, as I understand it in our book, is a, is a progressive illness. And um, the progression for me, I could tell you at 14 or 15 years old that once I put alcohol in my body, I could not stop drinking. I could tell you that at that point in my life, that, that was already on. Um, I knew I drank differently than other people. I thought it was because I drank like a man and they drank like sisters. That's what I thought. I didn't understand that when I put alcohol in my body, something happens to me that don't happen to nine out of ten people who pick up a drink of alcohol. I did not know this. The doctor's opinion was not taught where I went to high school. And um, probably my life. I'm not a guy that stands up behind the podium and starts talking about all these good times drinking. Let me tell you something. Because it was said, Kathy said it yesterday. My story don't change, but my understanding of it does. My perspective of it does. Let me tell you something. From the day I picked it up to the day I put it down. I went to a thousand concerts in the 70s. You know, I, I did all. I went disco text. Now, I did all that. And I thought I was having the time of my life. But see, that's only from my perspective. I can go around and come out, when alcohol worked for me, go ask my mom and dad how alcohol was working for them in the late 1970s. I went into a meeting and I said, I had a good time drinking. Because at the club, somebody got pats on the back for that. I said it at the wrong meeting. And the old-timer, and it was not his turn to share, <laughs> said, really? He said, if we brought your mother, your father, your girlfriend, your neighbors, your co-workers, your employer, and your creditors in here, and we said, kid, I had a good time drinking. What kind of time did you guys have? What do you think they'd say? I said, I don't want to have that meeting. <laughs> I said, I never thought of that. He said, I know you never thought of that. He says, because you're selfish and self-centered and you're so fully. You know what my definition of a good time drinking? Any consequences that have to be paid as a result of what I do are paid by somebody else. We had a hell of a time last night. Sorry you didn't get no sleep. I'm a teenager and I'm running the streets, driving drunk. If my parents knew it and they knew I was running around with the wrong kind of people and I'm having a good time, I ain't going to stand up here and glorify that. What this is about is truth. It is about truth. Dr. Bob in his story said he lived his life without regard for the right wishes or privileges of any other human being and as time went on it got worse. Let me tell you what I bought into my mom and daddy's house. Sleepless nights, resentment, guilt, shame, fear. I bought it in there. I infected them with it till they were sicker than I was. I'm not going to stand up here and glorify it. You want to do that? Go ahead, rock and roll. I ain't going to do it. My mind, I'm going to tell you something. This thing lives in my head. It is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it would love to plant some kind of seed in my mind that there was something redeeming about those years. From the day I picked it up to the day I, I put it down, regardless of what was going on in my life, I was headed down the tubes. Does anybody in here understand what I'm talking about? I had a 
a one o'clock curfew, come home at 4.30 in the morning, my mother's sitting in the living room with tears running down her face. And, the, and I walked in, and this is what she told me. She said, as your, and I was 16 years old. She says, your mother and your father, we owe your roof over your head, food to eat, clothes on your back, and education, we've done that. But, pal, we got something you can't have. And that's our peace of mind. She said, Kenny, you're going to penitentiary to the cemetery, and I ain't going with you. I'm giving you to God. I'm done. Go. Do what you want. I'm done. This is what I said to my mother. I broke you. I broke you. And I want you to know something, Mom. I'm a little disappointed. You're such a spiritual giant because it wasn't even that hard. And I walked away. And that's how I treated my mother. How do you think I treated you and yours? Selfish self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of the problem. My sponsor took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and scared me half to death. I thought, whoever wrote this has been following me around. This can't be here since 1939. I went off to college. I drunk. The day I went to college, if you want to see alcoholism in a family, I went to college. It was on a Sunday. All the freshmen came on a Sunday. Hugging, crying, babies leaving home for the first time. If you was watching my family, that is not what you would have seen. My father unloaded that van like his butt was on fire. It was up I-75 before I got the key in the door. I went to Miami of Ohio. You, think before they went, you know the last thing my father said before he went down the steps of the dormitory? Now nah, your mother can sleep. Now nah, your mother can sleep. I'm having a good time. Five years down there, I was an animal. No more parental interference. My alcoholism exploded. Um, I was drinking in the morning. Um, I had shakes by the time I was 19, 20 years old. Bartender told me, go get a uh, bottle of old granddad, drink two shots, and stop your hand from shaking. Never questioned it. Went, got it, did it. You know what I thought? That man's a genius. My first sponsor pointed out to me, do you notice that you never questioned the bartender? But you were surrounded by coaches, counselors, professors, family, all these people who wanted nothing but good for you. And all you ever said was, I'm grown, it's my life, and I ain't hurting nobody. But you never questioned the bartender. Why is it that I'm always willing to listen to the people who harm me? Why is that? Still making amends to that institution to this day. And I'm grateful that they've allowed me to come there and do that because they got some massive problems down here. And I offered because I have the time. So maybe somebody else's mom and dad ain't got to go through what mine did. Rebuild story, Kent's story, in other words. Alcoholism now is the center of my life. I construct my life to accommodate my alcoholism. I went to college like everybody else. Be successful in business. Remember when Bill Wilson started out? You notice how stuff started dropping out? Oh, no, that ain't for me, right? That's what started happening. As my alcoholism progresses, there's little room for anything else. I got in a union in an automotive plant in the summertime. Wasn't supposed to, but I did. They wasn't keeping track of my days. So now I got a job. And so instead of going to work in, in what I got an education for, if you want to call what I got an education, I went back to work in the plant. Why? Because it accommodated my drinking. They had something in there that a guy like me needs desperately. It's called a union. And believe me, if you drink like I drink and you don't come to work like I don't come to work, you look good having a union. And, and so that's what happened. And my alcoholism progresses. I'm going to bring you up to the end. Um, I've been in a lot of trouble. I don't get into all this, the legal stuff. Um, I can tell you very quickly, I've been convicted of driving under the influence of alcohol seven times in the state of Ohio. Here's a funny thing. This is how crazy I am when I came to AA. I had seven convictions. For if they had the laws back then and they got the day, I'd still be in a penitentiary. I heard a guy speak, Tom, from Cleveland, Tom F., a good friend of mine to this day, and he had 18 of them. The record in Tyler County living in Cleveland. You know what I thought to myself when I heard that? 
I knew I didn't belong here. I only had seven. Anybody can you relate to that? Are you kidding me right now? Right? The alcoholic mind at work in a meeting. Right? I've been in a lot of trouble. At the end of my drinking, no baths, no showers. The last three years of my drinking, I tried everything I could think of to stop. Got the booze out of the house. I quit hanging around them guys. I changed shifts at work. Um, moved. Uh, I went back to church innumerable times. I used to sit up at night with a Bible in this hand and a Miller High Life in this hand. And I couldn't shut it off. And the last year of my drinking, um, I lived in a place that I never want to forget that I lived and I never want to live in again. And it's the land of I don't care. No day, no night, no right, no wrong, no good, no evil, no God, no devil. Um, the three most prominent words in my vocabulary are I don't care. Um, just stay away from me. I had a heart attack and dropped dead when I was 26 years old. We do that. Sometimes we just drop dead. I dropped dead one day. My girlfriend freaked out. They will, your girlfriend will freak out if you drop dead in the house. I just want you to know that. She called the rescue squad. They come. They put the paddles on me. Right? They got me up there. I'm in the cardiac unit. Right? Tears running down the side of my face. Family up there. My mother says to the doctor, I already lost my oldest son. Do what you got to. I can't stand to lose another one. You know, when I'm laying there thinking, what are these people crying about? I'm the one that said. I laid there and I said, God, if you let me live, I'll never do this again. I never picked up another drink of alcohol or anything else. I swear I never. I, me I meant it as much as I mean it today. 48 hours in the cardiac unit, they put me in a regular room. Here's what happened. Whoo, that was close. <laughs> but I'm fine now. This calls for a celebration. And two hours out of the cardiac unit, I'm drunk and loaded in the hospital. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd never come to any show. How dark it is before the dawn. Sitting in the parking lot of the pump lounge. It's a Thursday night, a night like no other night, you know. My life was in the same condition it always was in. And, uh, I had what they call a moment of clarity or a moment of sanity. I believe I was prayed in here. There's a guy at home, six-pack Charlie. He said that that's the moment when God paralyzes the liar in you long enough for you to see the truth. And sitting in that car that day, my head cleared up for the first time in almost 20 years. And this is what I saw. Ken, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. And you better get some help because you can't do it by yourself. And you better do it now because you're running out of time. Just like that. And I believed it. And I didn't know what to do. And I went home and I called my best drinking buddy from college. He's a doctor today. A guy that could drink me under the table. When he got his letter of acceptance from medical school, he had a joint in this hand and a beer in this hand. He looked at that letter and said, I can't do this loaded. He put him down. He ain't never picked him back up. That was in 1979. He ain't, he ain't got what I got. But I didn't know who else to call, so I called my boy. I owed him $5,000, hadn't paid him back a dime, didn't even know if he would take a call from me. His wife answered the phone. She said, Richard is Ken. That's exactly how she said it. <laughs> and Rich got on the phone, and I said, Rich, it's your boy, man. I need some help. And this is what he said to me. He said, man, I'm, I've been waiting seven, eight years for this call. Pack a bag. Stay by the phone. I got you. And he is not a member of this fellowship. When I get a call for help at home, you know what I tell him, don't you? Pack a bag. Stay by the phone. I got you. 
And for that, I am responsible. And that also means I better have somewhere to take you. I just want to share that with you. Okay? I teach my sponsees, you get with these treatment centers, you get with these halfway, you, you, we are a resource for new people. We are a resource. And that's the way that I was sponsored. That's the way that I was taught. My brother and his wife drove me down. He lived in Centerville. They put me in a place called Green Hall in Xenia, Ohio. Big hospital treatment center. I got one of them $25,000 big books. And uh, <laughs> my brother and his wife in the front seat. I'm in the back seat with a case of Genesee beer. I didn't know too much about treatment, but I had figured out on my own they wasn't serving no liquor down there. So I get a couple of them cold jitties in me, and you ain't going to believe this, but I have a visit from the enemy, my thinking, on my way to treatment. And here's the thought that come to me. You know, I just may have overreacted here. <laughs> it ain't that bad, right? They come up and I'll start my comeback tomorrow. What I didn't know is that my father told my brother and his wife, I give you $100, you don't bring that tramp back here. That's a true story. My brother wanted that honey, he wouldn't turn around. They got me down to Rich's house, and uh, Rich's house was almost as big as this doggone hotel. I'm serious. It's a very successful man. And I remember when we pulled down the winding road leading to his house, and I'm looking at this big, beautiful home. I thought to myself, dude, what happened to your life? You was going to do something. You was going to be something. You went to school with him. Actually, my grades was better than his. What happened to you, man? Richard put me in his car. And we went to the, to the uh, gas station. He bought me a quart of Miller's. He said, it was always your favorite. He drove me from Centerville to, to Xenia. We pulled in the parking lot of the hospital. He put that car in park. He turned. He looked at me. He got the biggest smile I've ever seen on his face. He said, I had this much left in that quart. He said, go ahead, dog. Finish that. He said, don't ask me how I know it, man. He said, that's the last drink you ever want to take. That was 17th of May, 1992. I've not had another drop of alcohol or anything stronger than an aspirin since that day. And that is because Alcoholics Anonymous works. The three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous, Unity Service, and Recovery work. The program of recovery was designed for success, not for failure. There is no failure here. The only failure here occurs when I fail to take the action that this program outlines for me. Recovery is in my feet. It is not in my head. My sponsor told me I will train your feet against your head. To this day, if I'm sitting at home, I told somebody this the other day, if I'm sitting at home and I think I don't really want to go to the meeting tonight, I'm getting my keys while I'm thinking. My sponsor trained my feet against my head. I spent 35 days in a 28-day program. That'll tell you how I did in treatment. <laughs> they asked me what I thought about the guy. They had guys, in, when I got a detox, they had guys reading stories of their drinking escapades in the streets. They asked me what I thought of it. I said, I'll tell you what I think. When I'm down here for a few days to get help for the small problem I might have, I would like to volunteer my time servicing the energy to help you with these people. These are the sickest people I've ever seen in my life. That got me an extra week of treatment. The next morning, they called me on the, they paged me down to the nurse's station where my enemy married a nurse who was 28 years in AA, hung a sign around my neck this big. It said, I am not a counselor. I had to wear it for a whole week. <laughs> 28 days, they cut my insurance off. They called up to the plant. And they said, we don't think kids are ready to leave the hospital. You know what they set up the plant? We don't either. <laughs> they paid for me to stay an extra week. Wrote a check. 
treatment came home. Treatment is discovery, it ain't recovery. I learned a lot there, particularly about honesty. That was what they put. It was a first step deal. We didn't like write inventories before we, no, 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 no. Step one. I came home and I played a game. It's called don't drink, go to meetings, and don't do nothing else. If I put my arm through a window and I cut an artery in my arm, I start bleeding all over the floor. I put a towel on my arm. I drive myself to the hospital. I run in the emergency room and sit down. Doctor comes out and says, come on back, Mr. Coleman. We'll treat you now. I sit there in the hospital, bleeding to death, look at the doctor and say, no, thank you. I'll just sit here. And I bleed to death in the emergency room. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the emergency room. I've been coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've watched people attend these meetings on a daily basis die before my very eyes of untreated alcoholism. The treatment for the disease I suffer from is a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, period. At home, we got people that are staying up at a meeting and go, my name is John Doe. I want to reintroduce myself. I have relapsed. You know, we all clap and we're glad John's alive and we're glad he's back. But after the meeting, I'll talk to John. I said, John, can I talk to you? Sure, can I? ask you a couple questions. Did you have a sponsor? No, no. Did you read the big book of alcoholics and Apply 12 steps to your life today to time the best of your ability? No, no. Do you have a home group service commitment to alcoholics and Anonymous, John? No, no. Well, can I ask you a question? Sure, Ken. Then what did you relapse from? <laughs> a relapse is a return to a prior condition. If the prior condition is alcoholism and the treatment is the steps and you haven't treated it, I have a message for you this morning. You haven't relapsed. You've continued to use. We got people coming to these meetings and they're going out of here and saying, AA don't work. Why don't you tell the truth? I came to some meetings. I sat in the meetings. I didn't take one suggestion that was given to me and I've continued to use. Tell the truth. Old timer told me when I was new, he said, boy, sitting in a chicken coop don't make you no chicken. Got it. I went to over 300 meetings, 250. I stopped counting in, in three months, and I ended up in a parking lot of Daly's Pub in downtown Sandusky, vibrating. Vibrating. Because I'm going to drink. I had become so restless, irritable, and just good. A man at work said to me, for God's sake, go take a drink. You're driving us all crazy. And I'm like, what am I, some kind of freak? I go to these meetings every day. God, first prayer, God, what am I doing wrong? Bam, I'm standing at the turning point. I got an immediate answer. What are you doing right? If you go to that many meetings, you hear it every day. Get a sponsor, read it, stop working book, get a home group, get a service, and help others. I ain't do none of that. I treat today like a cigarette smoking donut dunking coffee clutch. <laughs> but because I had gone to those meetings, I knew where to go and I knew who to go to. And I went to a man and I said, would you help me? And this is what he told me. I will take you through the steps of this program as outlined by the big book as it was done with me. And I will show you how I live these steps in my life on a daily basis. He told me, bury yourself knee deep. He said, no, 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 scratch that. He said, bury yourself shoulder deep in this thing called AA so you can't teeter and fall. And I've been shoulder deep in Alcoholics Anonymous ever since. And my sponsor took me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as I try to live them in my life today. A lot has happened since I've been in here. Um... Life has gone on. If you're new in here, um, sobriety is not an absence of the vicissitudes of life. Life is coming. Whatever comes to your next door neighbor's house is coming to your house. People are going to get sick. People are going to die. You're going to get jobs. You're going to lose jobs. You're going to get married. You're going to get divorced. Life going to go on. Huh? One of the things that I can tell you is this. There has been nothing in front of me that's been greater than the power that is behind me. I have lived life on life's terms. I buried my mom and daddy in here. 
I got divorced at 20 years sober in here. Never once, never once has the thought of taking a drink ever crossed my mind. I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I have done what my sponsor asked me to do. I have stayed consistent with the actions in here. I haven't done them perfectly, but I do them a day at a time as best I can. I made amends to my mother before she died. I was two years sober. I moved back into their house because I didn't have a safe place to stay. My sponsor said, action speaks louder than words. People see better than they hear. I want you to do what you've never done before. Go in there and be the son God put you on this earth to be. Keep your mouth shut. And so I did that. Recovery is in my feet. It is not in my mouth and it is not in my head. And after two years, she was about to go. He said, I want you to make you direct. They got her off the morphine. I went to the hospital, had a big speech planned out. When the moment came, my mom had tears running down her face. I had tears running down mine. And the only thing I could say was, Mama, I'm sorry. But that I'm sorry, which I had said to her many times before, before it came from self. This time it came from spirit, and she felt that I had had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I can only live my life one or two ways, from self or from spirit. And my mother, and she looked at me and she beamed at me. And my mother said, I forgive you. She said, Kenny, I want you to promise me you'll stay with those people in AA. They were able to do for you what we could not. I promised you that I would, and I have. My dad died. I was about 18 years sober, and we were the best of friends. And um, I was the last person to be with my father. What a gift. And when I walked out of that room that night, I knew that my daddy wasn't going to be there tomorrow. And um, my dad had a great, I had two daughters um, born. I got married when I was about four years sober. And my daughters loved their granddaddy. Oh, my God, what a deal that was. And um, he said, don't bring them girls. I used to take my kids over to my father's house. They would trash his living room in about five minutes. And he would call me. I wasn't even home. He said, come back here and get these kids. And I would go back and get them. I said, Daddy, I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with them. He said, I do. They're yours. <laughs> and uh, and they, they, they loved their granddaddy and he them. And, um, and life has gone on. i got a lot of things going on in my life today that are unanswered. I don't know what's going to happen. Let me share something with you. There's a line in the book that said, The joy of living we really have even under pressure and difficulty. Ain't nothing bigger than God in my life. i got to maintain my spiritual condition. That is what this whole thing is about. And I can live peacefully today. I want to share something. I ain't had one unmet need since I've been here. I have not had one unmet need since I have been here. Because God could and would if he was sorry. And though I do this a day at a time, I work intensively with other alcoholics. I sponsor guys all over the place. Um, the light of my life and the window to my soul. Right? Lovely to be sponsoring a guy nine months sober that tells you what he did yesterday, and you know you did it too. Right? It's a beautiful thing, right? So I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love living in the progression of recovery today rather than the progression of this disease. And um, if you knew here... Um, they gave me a tape of a man named Warren Chisholm, senior 12th man in AA in Cleveland. Great speaker, got sober in 1939. Warren Chisholm, senior, was a friend of my first sponsor. He made this statement that anyone who comes here who is willing to practice the precepts and principles of this program, as outlined by the founders in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, need never drink again one day at a time. I ran to the old man. I said, you can't say that. Never drink again. And Bill said, oh, yes, he can. He said, and I'm going to tell you why I can't. He said, because this is a spiritual program, and God doesn't fail. If this don't work for you, it's because you have not fulfilled the conditions that have been laid down. God will not do for you what you can do for yourself, but will do for you what you can't do for yourself. Those who do get, and those who don't, don't. 
And it's just that simple. If I said anything to help you today, thank God, don't thank me. If I didn't say nothing to help you today, guess what? It's more meetings tonight. God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. God could and would. If he were sought, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you.